It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The founding ideal of cryptocurrencies was independence from overweening governments. But the crypto crowd also wants legitimacy in the financial world. Now those two barely compatible ideas are crashing together as regulators step in. And it's not uncommon for North Korean women to make more than their partners, yet they're still expected to play obedient homemakers too. They're getting so fed up of that double burden that they've coined new words to describe deadbeat husbands. But first... In the Amhara region of Ethiopia, people have been fleeing towns and villages, following heavy fighting in the country's latest civil war. We left behind everything we have worked for for years, says one man. We could not even take our clothes with us. We just took our children and left. Amhara is a region caught in the middle. To the north is the Tigray region, home of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. It was a ruling party of the country for decades until it was ousted in 2018. To the south, the capital Addis Ababa, where Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been directing federal forces and sometimes joining them to put down a TPLF rebellion that began last November. First, Abiy said that would take just weeks. As it's stretched to a year, the war has become more complicated. Local militias and ethnic forces have been drawn into the fight. Neighboring states have become part of the calculus, and the people of Tigray have been starved of food and aid. Meanwhile, the balance of power in this war just keeps shifting. So I visited the town of Gashena a few days ago. Now, this is a small town on a strategic junction between Tigray and ultimately the capital Addis Ababa, which is about 300 kilometers south. Tom Gardner is our Addis Ababa correspondent and has been reporting from the Amhara region. I drove there from the town of Debre Tabor and all along the road we saw the burnt-out husks of tanks, the charred remains of trucks which had been hit by drone strikes or airstrikes. We saw homes whose roofs had been blown out in recent fighting. And in Geshena itself, we just saw huge numbers of soldiers, militia everywhere. It'd been occupied by rebels from Tigray since August. But then in early December, they retreated. But then two days after I left, the town fell to the rebels again. So it's been swinging back and forth recently. Very unpredictable, very volatile. And in that respect, it's sort of representative of many places. But in the larger scheme of things, I do think the pendulum is swinging back in favor 
of Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, and against the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Now, when last we spoke of this in, in early November, uh, the, the TPLF were, were in the ascendant, were, were uh, perhaps even staging a, an, a, an attack on Aras Ababa. What's changed in those, in those weeks? Yeah, so they did reach very far south. But then suddenly in late November, much to many people's surprise, actually, federal forces began recapturing a string of small towns. Abiy himself had gone to the front and promised he would be leading the troops uh, in person at the battle. Since then, his forces have continued pushing the Tigrayans northwards in Amhara, and they pushed them mostly out of Afar, which is the eastern region with a critical road and rail link to the port at neighboring Djibouti. So Abiy and, and the federal forces seem to, to have the upper hand once again. Why, why the turnaround? I think there are several factors, Jason. Firstly, there's a race against the clock. I mean, there is an ongoing blockade of Tigray that's been going for most of this year, but most severely since the Tigrayans recaptured most of the region in July. About 90% of the food aid needed in the region has been prevented from entering. But obviously, the most important advantage the federal side has is its numerical advantage. I mean, Tigrayans represent only 7%, roughly, of the population, a population of 115 million. Now, the army was very much crippled during the counterinsurgency in Tigray over several months. But in the last few months, following Abbey's repeated call to arms, its ranks seem to have swollen significantly. And when I was in um, Geshena, we saw a huge number. I mean, the streets were overflowing with federal troops, Amhara militiamen, Amhara paramilitaries known as special police, and volunteer fighters known as FANO. In fact, I spoke to one of their leaders. Well, uh, my name is Minwar Alamu. I come from Lalibela. And for the time being, I'm just fighting with a terrorist PLF group. Who so stressed just, uh, that the coordination between all these forces had been critical in pushing the Tigrayans out of Geshena. It was interesting to speak to because he articulated quite clearly the perspective of, of people in Amhara, what I think is probably the, the kind of mainstream view, which is that the Tigrayan forces have invaded Amhara and they feel they are now fighting a, a battle for survival. It's an existential struggle for them. So they're very determined. And, and I do think their the morale is quite high, especially since the prime minister joined them at the front line to, to lead them. But it's not just the numbers. The federal army also has a major technological advantage. What do you mean by that? Well, since July, Abbey has reportedly brought new drones and other high-tech kit from the UAE, Turkey, Iran, Israel, China. And these airstrikes and drone strikes seem to have, again, devastated the Tigrayans' heavy weaponry and logistical support, just like they did at the start of the war last year. But particularly now, as they descended from the mountains towards the flatter, more exposed terrain near the capital. As I, as I mentioned, we saw the evidence of this on the road. So the Tigrayans are up against superior technology. They're up against superior numbers, uh, up against people who are very much up in arms. Do you think this swing at last is, is the decisive one? Is this possibly the end of, of the TPLF? Well, Abby certainly seems to think so. And in fact, he 
has called several African leaders to tell them that the war is all but over. I think that's definitely premature. The TPLF claims its forces are only in, in tactical retreat and that they remain largely intact. I think that's an exaggeration. But in many places, the Tigrayan forces do appear to have withdrawn largely without fighting. So is that how you see things playing out? I mean, what, what is the next stage of, uh, of this after this evident lull? I think for now, the threat to the center has receded somewhat, but several other dangers loom. One is the Syrianization of Ethiopia's war, which means you know multiple, sometimes adversarial foreign powers meddling in Ethiopia's war for geopolitical advantage. And then there's a more immediate risk, I think, which is that Abiy decides to push again into Tigray to topple, to annihilate the TPLF once and for all. Now, officially, this is off the table. A senior ruling party official told me just the other day, that's not going to happen. We don't think it's wise to try to occupy Tigray again. We need a political plan. We need a peace plan. But in Amhara in particular, many people think otherwise. And then for their part, the TPLF, TPLF leaders, they insist that their strategic objective, the overthrow of Abiy, remains unchanged. So for now, the, the prospects of talks, of negotiations to, to end this war seem as far off as ever. Thanks very much for joining us, Tom. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. What a year it's been for cryptocurrencies. There was the usual roller coaster ride for Bitcoin, of course. Bitcoin has hit another record high, adding one more mark to its unmatched record of price swings. But also Coinbase, a crypto exchange, went public in a big way. Coinbase looks like it's going to get close to $100 billion with a valuation. El Salvador started using Bitcoin as currency. So it's being called a cryptocurrency milestone, the first country to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. And as of yesterday, Tesla is apparently taking some payments in the meme coin of the year. The one, you know, named after a dog. Say what you will about Dogecoin. You've made a lot of money in this joke coin. It was up 15,500% at its peak this year in May. But step back from all the stomach-churning highs and lows, and all told, crypto assets have rallied. A lot. They're worth more than an order of magnitude, more than they were early last year. The whole business was conceived to be free of government meddling, decentralized, libertarian. But now that crypto holdings amount to almost two and a half trillion dollars, they're squarely in the sights of regulators. So countries around the world broadly fall into three buckets in terms of how they are dealing with crypto. Matthew Favas is a finance correspondent for The Economist. As the first bucket is mostly smaller countries, who are embracing crypto mostly for celebrity status-enhancing reasons. 
At the other extreme, you have typically large emerging markets, such as China and India, which have or are threatening to, to ban crypto. And in between, you have actually quite an important category, which is made up of America and Europe and a few rich Asian countries, which are countries where a lot of trading activity takes place, but which are only beginning to sniff around and look at regulation. And, and what kind of regulation are we talking about here? Well, again, it falls into three broad baskets. The first one covers rules stopping crypto assets from being used to launder money. In October, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the body that gathers the biggest financial centers around the world and which sets global standards for international finance, recommended that new rules for crypto services providers should have to gather data on their users and retain the data for quite a while so that we can basically screen out suspicious transactions. The second basket is how crypto investments should be taxed. Some countries treat cryptocurrencies as property. That means that it's only when those assets are sold that you have to pay tax if you make a profit. But other countries deem crypto assets a foreign exchange. And that means that you have to pay tax or report gains, even if you don't sell the currency. So countries do not agree on this question, and it may remain the case for some time. And then what's the third basket of regulation? The third basket is probably the most important one, and it's also the one that's the least settled. It's meant to address a number of very important objectives. One is protecting consumers against fraud. Another is reducing systemic risk, so avoiding the financial system from collapsing, quite important. And the third one is ensuring fair competition between notably banks and crypto firms. And so within the questions that regulators and lawmakers are looking at are, for example, are digital assets securities that would imply heavy disclosures, so a lot of information that issuers of those, those securities have to provide. Or they could be deemed commodities, which would mean a lighter obligation on exchanges to prevent market manipulation. And so what's, what's gone on to date? There's been a few concrete actions that uh, regulators have taken. I guess the most visible was taken in, in the summer when uh, Binance, the largest crypto exchange, was targeted by a number of uh, warnings and bans. There was a proper ban in Britain on certain regulated financial activities. So the exchange could not sell certain type of services to, to British citizens. And then a number of the countries, including Japan, Hong Kong, Germany, Italy, issued warnings saying that essentially the, the exchange was, was doing things that it shouldn't be doing in their countries because it was not licensed to do so. In August, also quite surprising for the crypto industry, you saw a clause tucked away in the infrastructure bill that the Biden administration was, was trying to pass through the Senate that uh, basically was going to require a lot of crypto firms to report transactions to the taxman. Quite a big surprise. So crypto firms tried to fight against that. Eventually, it was included, so it's still in there. And then lastly, you know, if we look at Europe, the EU is planning a, a big thicket of rules that is going to require a lot of things from crypto firms. And so how do all of these various crypto firms and exchanges and, and platforms feel about this coming evident wave of legislation? Initially, they did not think much of it. You know, many crypto entrepreneurs have a, a relatively libertarian worldview where decentralized finance need not have very active or even any regulators or intermediaries. But also they have a desire for legitimacy. So, you know, over time they've grown with the idea that perhaps regulators would, uh, would step in. But they didn't, didn't make much effort to, 
prevent scrutiny. They were mostly disinterested. But that has changed, actually, and especially this year and especially in, in the last few months, really, since they've seen, for example, what we discussed before about the infrastructure bill. They've done a number of things. The first one is to try and lure experts from big banks and government agencies to try and get the, the know-how of how regulators work. And they've done so by offering giant pay packets. So, for example, you know, the, a former senior regulator might get a share bonus worth tens of millions of dollars. But also crypto firms have hired lobbyists. So we've done some calculations here at The Economist. We've looked through a number of public disclosures that have been made by crypto firms. And it turns out the crypto industry has spent nearly $5 million lobbying the American Senate in the first nine months of 2021. Half of it in the last quarter alone, which shows you how worried they've become in, in very recently. And what is it that all these people are lobbying for? Some big firms are trying to preempt tougher rules by putting forward their own proposals. Coinbase, the largest crypto exchange in America, has done that. Andresen Orovitz, which is a, a, a big venture capital firm, which is heavily invested in crypto startups, has done the same. But experts that look at those plans that have been put forward by the crypto firms say that they are typically self-serving and could be dangerous for consumers because they don't have enough protection for them. One layer I spoke to who advised congressional Democrats on crypto legislation before said that these, these plans basically do not include a single compromise to public interest. So essentially, everyone is, is sort of tooling up for, for the battle here. Well, who do you think is going to win out between the, uh, the, the regulators and, and those who only begrudgingly want to be regulated? So what's really clear is that some of the loftiest goals that crypto firms have, so for example, like a, an entirely new regulator or a self-regulating body, this is not going to happen. Uh, nobody thinks this is, uh, this is likely because regulators and lawmakers don't have any appetite for that. But these firms have built capital among political cycles in Congress, for example. Congress has a blockchain caucus now that has 35 lawmakers as members, so it's, it's quite a significant contingent. You've got congressional candidates accepting donations in crypto, but crypto capitalists, as we may call them, are unlikely to win completely. So what we'll end up with is probably a stalemate or perhaps an, an ambitious, fragmented regulatory framework, which may not satisfy anybody, but will still perhaps be some progress towards bringing this environment, this new universe into some kind of control. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Jason. For lots more on the wild world of crypto, check out our sister show, Money Talks, later today. In a special episode, Matthew spoke with the heads of some of the most powerful businesses in the crypto world, exchanges, including Changpeng Zhao, the founder of Binance, the biggest exchange of them all. At the beginning, when somebody introduced me to crypto, I was like, no, this is going to be the future. This, this is absolutely the future. This is a new technology. This is going to change the world. What internet did to information, blockchain, Bitcoin is going to do to finance. And I'm 35 not too old, not too young, I can catch this uh, and I want to jump in. So I actually left my job without having a job offer. I just want to be in the space and figure out what I can do. Look for Money Talks later today, wherever well-regulated podcasts are sold and traded. The tension in a marriage created by money has long been a source of comedy gold. Just think of Lucy and Desi, Fred and Wilma, 
and of course, Homer and Marge. While you lounge around here doing laundry and putting up drywall, I'm at work busting my hump. Oh, please! From what I hear, you waltz in there at 10.30, take a nap on the toilet, then sit around Googling your own name until lunch. <gasps> Who told you that? While The Simpsons, created by Matt Groening, is fictional, the fights in the show over money aren't too far from the truth. Now look here, mister. I pay the bills, I do the budget, and I'm in charge of the money. Wives in North Korea can probably sympathize with Marge here, and they've come up with some creative jibes to poke fun at the husbands who aren't bringing home the kimchi. Common insults in North Korea for useless husbands include hembaragi, which um, means sunflowers who sit pretty waiting for their wives to come home, uh, natjondung, which is a day lamp, uh, about as useful as a lamp that's turned on in the sunshine, or a bulpyon, which means inconvenience and is a play on nampyon, which is the Korean word for husband. Lena Shipper is our sole bureau chief. So there's tension in many North Korean marriages, as possibly in other marriages around the world, because of an imbalance between husbands and wives, in part because women now hold a lot of the economic power in the relationship. How do you mean? In, in what sense do they hold power? So what we know about this is kind of patchy and taken from surveys of people who have fled to South Korea over the past couple of decades. But after the collapse of the North's planned economy and public distribution system in the 90s, the state grew more relaxed about enforcing labor requirements for women. But they did continue to compel most of the men to work for the state. Unfortunately, those jobs pay most of those men very little or nothing altogether. So the women, who are both freer than men to spend time moonlighting out in the markets and who are compelled to do so in order to feed their families, have acquired some economic power in that time. And, and what about the power dynamics at home then? So despite the women's extra earnings, uh, traditional views of family life remain common. So many women do both this work outside the home in the markets and bring in the money, but they're also stuck with the domestic chores and childcare. And while many women complain about the double burden, they do seem to acknowledge that the fault lies with the system that forces the men to work without much pay. But even where people do blame the state, the gap between expectations and reality has begun to cause conflict, which means that you know some overburdened wives have started demanding help at chores or a say in family decisions. But you say we know what we know because of, of surveys done with defectors. Is that a representative sample? So in um, 2020, the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, which is an NGO in Seoul, asked 60 refugees from Hesan, which is a city on North Korea's border with China, about their married lives. And among those people, 47% said that the wife was the main breadwinner, 37% said it was the husband, and 17% said that both contributed equally. But Hesan is a you know fairly progressive and fairly open city by North Korean standards because it's so close to the Chinese border. So it may not be entirely representative. But there are reports from other parts of the country that suggest that there may be similar trends afoot there. Um, I spoke to one woman who was not from Hesan, but from a different part of North Korea and who arrived in South Korea six years ago. She said she'd spend her days selling smuggled household goods and bootlegs of South Korean TV dramas in the markets. Um, she'd come home to do the housework, look after her daughter, and meanwhile her husband did a few hours of work at his state-mandated factory job, but then he drank and gambled the rest of the time. And she said they hardly ever saw each other, and the only thing they ever talked about was money, and she was fairly disheartened by the fact that he never 
did any semblance of housework or tried to help her in other ways. It sounds as if there's quite a few disheartened North Korean wives then. I mean, is there any chance this will change or is this just sort of set in place now societally? So the state is unlikely to offer women more rights or men better jobs, which brings us to an interesting point because the most successful marriages, insofar as we know, appear to be those that combine a woman's economic activities with a man's political influence. So if men suffer through years of badly paid work for the state, particularly in army or police jobs, um, to rise through the ranks, then they can bring in both higher salaries further down the line, as well as obviously the ability to protect their wives' grey market activities. So those kinds of relationships seem to be um, the thing that works best. For everybody else who's not in a marriage between a you know high-earning woman and a politically powerful man, uh, life is probably going to continue to suck quite a lot for the foreseeable future. Lena, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.